To put the gospel in uh, a fuller context, it's important to uh, understand uh, the theological background of the Old Testament and the development. And we really go back to uh, Abraham. When God made a covenant with Abraham, what did he promise him? Land. You'll be the father of a great nation, many children. And you'll be a blessing. There's three things. That's what we call in at least theological terms, uh, and I'll explain. I'm going to use a big word, and then I'll explain it. It's called a this-world eschatology, meaning that eschatology is a word that comes from Greek, meaning uh, the end, the purpose, finality. What's the purpose of life? What's the end of life? And notice what you hear in this uh, promised Abram, Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, is that it's a what we call a this-world eschatology. You're going to have the land. You're going to have many children. These are very concrete. You're going to be a blessing to other nations, again, in the present world. And what you don't hear is what we call a next-world eschatology. You don't hear the words that are in today's gospel, and we'll get to them, rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be, reward will be great in heaven. No, your reward is great here and now. So what God promised him was, uh, was that. In, in, the, in the Old Testament world, no matter if you were wicked or uh, good, when you died, you went to a place called Sheol. And Sheol doesn't have, uh, like, it's not like heaven and hell. It doesn't have a good consequence or a bad consequence. It's just a place you go. It'd be very similar to, you know, if you're driving down the road and you see uh, a junkyard with a bunch of old cars rusting, that's Sheol. So it didn't make any difference if you were a little VW, uh, you know, Volkswagen bug or if you were a Lexus. You just all end up in the same junkyard. And that's really what Sheol in the Old Testament world was. Um, but it, it, the idea uh, with the covenant with God, with Abraham, is that uh, the Lord says, if you will keep your part of the bargain, I'll keep my part of the bargain. So I'll be your God, and I've selected you, and you'll be my people. And therefore, it begins that covenant with Abram, with Abraham. That develops. But the difficulty with any kind of development is sometimes developments can go weird and can go to get off kilter. And so if I asked a person or if I looked at a person or I just looked at their life, if, uh, say, it was a couple who couldn't have children, well, then I would ask the question, what would you do wrong? What sin did you commit? And you may remember in John's Gospel, the man born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, uh, is he blind because of a sin he committed or a sin his parents committed? In other words, they still kind of had that. Uh, we still have it to a degree. You know, something happened to us, and what do we say? Lord, what sin did I commit that's so bad that got me in this situation? You know, all these consequences. Well, that, that theological development, again, it went off kilter because basically what happened is then people who were maybe, uh, say you were married and your husband gets involved in an accident and is killed, um, and you end up as a, uh, as a widow and the children are orphans or something, uh, people would look at them and say, you must have done something wrong. Therefore, you're not blessed, you're cursed. And throughout the development of the Old Testament, that one of the major sub-themes is this idea of blessing or curse. You're either blessed or cursed. There's almost like nothing in between. 
And what happens is this, this finally develops. In, in the Old Testament, it moves to the book of Job, and Job confronts this. That's, uh, the book of Job confronts this theology. You remember the story about Job. You know, Satan goes up to heaven, and he says to God, the only reason he's faithful is because you blessed him with, you know, camels and cattle and a lot of sheep and children. And if you took it away, I'll bet you he won't stay faithful. He won't keep his bargain of the covenant. So God says, okay, fine, you know, let, you're on. And so in chapter 1, it goes very, very quickly. He loses all this stuff, and he still remains faithful to God. Chapter 2, Satan goes back up again and says, okay, you won the first round. Let's go to round 2. And the rest of the book of Job, a very long book, is a playing out of that same thing. That Satan says, um, let me at least do something against him. So he you know, ends up sick and boils. And What does his wife say to him? For God's sake, curse God and die. Just get this stuff over with. The three friends come in. You know, his wife confronts him, and the three friends come in, and I'm giving a brief summary. And basically, they're asking the question, Job, what sin did you commit, or what sin did your children commit that you ended up so sick and ill? Because people who were sick and ill were seen to have, it was because of sin. And he contends, he says, I haven't done anything. My children haven't done anything. There's, there's an injustice here. And so that theology, which went way off kilter, starting with Abraham, is rectified. And now we start moving toward the idea, your reward may not be great on this earth. It may be great in heaven. So there's a shift from a this world eschatology reward to a next world eschatology. In other words, that's where our reward may be is great, depending upon our circumstances and our faithfulness to God. And so that's what, when Jesus comes up on the mountain, and you know, there's this huge crowd, it's ordinary people. And if you probably had asked them, sometimes you ask us, are you, do you consider yourself the blessed in this world? You know, what we would say, well, you know, the movie stars are blessed. Athletes, you know, make a lot of money and a lot of success. They're blessed. A lot of times we don't consider ourselves blessed. And so when Jesus is talking just to ordinary people who thought, I'm not blessed. My family isn't blessed. We're poor. We're fishermen. Mary herself and Joseph were poor. Nazareth was a little podunk town where they came from. It literally was just a little bitty dirt town, actually. When they went to go for the purification, uh, Mary and Joseph were so poor they couldn't afford the usual sacrifice that you had to make. So there's an exception. It was like a poor clause. So you could offer two turtle doves because you couldn't afford the oxen and the, uh, the turtle dove. And that's what they did. So it's a good, good indication that they were from Nazareth. You know, People didn't think pe- much of people from uh, Nazareth. Nathaniel says in John's Gospel when he talks about we've met the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. What does Nathaniel say? What good can come from Nazareth? It's a little podunk town. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. The Lord's Savior comes from that. Again, from the ordinary. From those who would not have considered themselves blessed. So when Jesus comes up on the mountain and he's talking to these people and he's saying to them, wait a second, look, you know, you may not think you're blessed, but you are blessed. And I'm just going to use a couple of, selecting a couple from the uh, Beatitudes. Um, you know, blessed are those who mourn. You know, anybody, uh, any one of us that's lost uh, a loved one, 
Now, we've all lost a loved one, parents, maybe siblings, maybe even a child. And you mourn. Sometimes you get angry with God. Why did you take this person? Why did you inflict them with cancer or this particular, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia? Why did you do this? What did they do? And we do, we mourn. And instead of saying, well, wait a second, let's interpret this. If this happened, then you must be cursed. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 time out. Time out. You're not cursed. If you're mourning someone, Jesus looks at it from a different point of view. What that mourning is reflected in how Jesus sees that mourning, you love that person. And that's why you're mourning. You miss that person. And that's why you're mourning. And what it tells me isn't that you've been cursed. What it's telling me, the Lord says, is that you love that person. And that love means says more to me than anything else. You're not outside of the kingdom of heaven. You're in the kingdom of heaven. Because of what you're telling me by the very fact that you're mourning the loss of someone. Probably one of my favorites is the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What happens when we are hungry or thirsty? We're not satiated. Something's missing. We're lacking something. The idea of righteousness, especially in the Old Testament, righteousness meant to be righteousness meant to be right in the eyes of God. But for those again who are hungering or thirsting, something isn't there. Are you being cursed instead of blessed? And what the Lord says is, whoa, whoa, whoa! We got to look at it from a different point of view. God sees it from a different point of view. God sees it from the point of view of this: a person may know what's right to do. And just isn't quite there to be able to do it. And for a number of reasons. Anybody who's ever uh, lost a family member or loved one to uh, drugs. You know, you do what you can. And sometimes those children or those family members will even steal from you. And yet sometimes when you, know, when you, when you get a sober moment with them, they'll tell you, I know what I'm doing is wrong. Intellectually, I know it. But I just can't get over this. I, I, I can't deal with it yet. And what the Lord is saying is, wait a second, you're hungering and thirsting for what is right. And therefore, don't consider yourself cursed. You're outside of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' vision is that you are in the kingdom of heaven. Because you are trying. You may fail and fail and fail. But the idea that you're striving, you're trying... You're using some form of effort. You know what's right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied one day. In the Beatitudes, the Lord Jesus looks at things with a different point of view, a different vision. And that's probably why so many people were drawn to him. Because they realize, you're talking about me. You're talking to me. I, I, I am one of those people. And that's probably why he drew such a large crowd and, and just was able to mesmerize people in like the mountain. And then he tells them at the end, and it's a very subtle shift 
that very few of us catch. In the Beatitudes, when we go through and say, blessed are those who, it's called in, in grammar, a third person impersonal, which means this. Blessed are those, whoever they may be, this third person impersonal, we're not saying exactly who they are. And then just fill in, for they shall be satisfied, inherit the land. What's interesting is when you get to the end, listen to what the Lord has done. And blessed are you. He's moved from a third person personal with this almost like this mantra, and without realizing it, we have been seduced by the Beatitudes. We have been drawn in to the kingdom because the Lord addresses us directly. And for some reason, it's like we just don't catch it. We don't get it. But we're there. We're drawn in. We're we're mesmerized. We're pulled in. And we realize, now I understand, yes, I am part of the kingdom of heaven. The Lord is including me. No matter what my status may be in life, no matter what struggles I may have, even if I know the right thing to do and struggle with trying to do it, if I try to be a peacemaker in the family and it blows up in my face, trying to keep peace between the children or keep peace between children and spouses or parents, the Lord says, the peacemakers, yes, you may be one of those peacemakers. You're trying hard. And then the final conclusion, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice that you're in the kingdom, for your reward will be great in heaven. We may not get it here, folks. And yet people are drawn to that. We ask the Lord, as we are on this mount where he gave this great sermon. This is just part of chapter 5. It goes on chapter 6 and chapter 7. But the beauty of the Beatitudes is it's all-inclusive. And it's interesting, when you listen and you listen with, you know, an open heart, you realize, I'm part of this. The other thing is, you could have been, and could be today, Christian, Catholic, and Jewish. And these apply to you. They're universal. We pray the Lord make us part of that kingdom of heaven as we meditate on these different Beatitudes. Maybe to pick one that uh, you may consider your favorite. Today, maybe to meditate on those. Which one resonates with me? Which one speaks to me more than the others? Yesterday, uh, inviting you, the Lord's going to speak to you on this pilgrimage. He's going to talk to you. You have to listen with a heart and listen with an open heart. What is he saying to each and every one of us as we open our heart to hear his word? Amen.